Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. This is Fergus in Chicago. Um, you can uh, see all of the work associated with this episode and all of the others on our website, on strategyshowcase.com. You can also connect with the guests and uh, sign up for new episode alerts. So this is a conversation about McDonald's in the UK. As you may recall, we've done a number of shows from uh, different McDonald's regions around the world, the UK. Uh, now today, obviously, we do the, we did the US, we've done New Zealand. And it's always interesting to hear different perspectives on the brand from different parts of the world. And what's always surprised me is that it was a good lesson for me to learn too about the idea that there isn't a single brand platform for McDonald's. And there's a reason for that, which is, which is explored in this episode too. There are some sort of basic brand promises that exist. In the UK, the brand promises making feel-good moments easy for everyone. In uh, New Zealand, they say the simple pleasure of family togetherness. And I don't know if you recall ever the uh, the last episode, I think it was the last episode of Mad Men, when Peggy and the team are sitting in what would have been at that time a whole new concept, which was a fast food chain. And they're trying to pitch the business and Peggy looks around the room and she describes it as the place where every table is a family table. I've always loved that. Uh, one other thing to note is because we obviously edit episodes, this point I think isn't clear enough and I wanted to just give it some clarity. The point where we talk about a marketing framework and it having sort of four pillars. And it was it's during the part of the discussion when we talk about the fact that McDonald's made a decision in the UK to begin investing more in uh, emotional or emotive-based advertising as part of their brand rebuild and uh, finding a, a better balance between sort of, in essence, performance-based marketing and brand-based uh, marketing. Uh, we talk about these pillars, and I don't think it was clear enough what I was referring to. It's a, it's a framework that Leo Burnett and McDonald's developed, I think, prior around uh, the, the uh, maybe around 2005, 2006. But it basically has four pillars. And these are things that many of us may be familiar with in terms of these pillars. But one pillar is value. Now, so there's messaging and content around value. Another is variety, variety of products. Now, then there's the more brand-rooted pillars, such as trust and brand affinity. So we're talking about those two columns when we talk about the two pillars where the brand's investing more in. And then also the recognition that that, that returned phenomenally well in ROI. And therefore, issues of brand and brand tone began to work its way into product advertising. So when you, you hear that, that'll hopefully make it a little bit clearer about what uh, what we were referring to. And then lastly, this is really a story of uh, 13 years of growth. It, it was uh, an award winner, APG award winner in 2021. It was on, on long-term thinking. So this is part crisis management and then part brand management. And I know crisis management is a, is a segment of brand management, but in essence, it was how the brand overcame a crisis and then how it continued then over time to manage and, and to build upon its brand equities and rediscover many of them and reshape them. That's basically the structure of, of the uh, conversation. So here are uh, Thomas O'Neill, head of marketing at McDonald's in the UK, and Tom Sussman, head of strategy at Leo Burnett in London. Enjoy. For frequent listeners, people will remember the fact that, or will note the fact that uh, this is actually my third episode of McDonald's. And um, this makes it, this, this works because um, the, we're looking at McDonald's on different continents in certain ways. So we've done we've done McDonald's in New Zealand as uh, the Kiwi Burger episode as part of our work series. It was a work award winner last year. And then we've done a North American McDonald's with uh, Jennifer Nealon and Tess Testopoulos for, for Widen and Kennedy uh, for their uh, campaign 
in the U.S., which was also an award winner. So it was it was terrific now to get the get the chance to talk with uh, Tom Sussman and Thomas O'Neill, uh, taking our focus to the U.K. Tom um, Tom Sussman has been on the show before. We did a great episode, Tom, together on John Lewis Insurance, and you were one of the you were one of the early guests on this show. One of the very first, I think. Yeah. One of the very first, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's become such such a success since. I had no idea how lucky I was when you, when you first asked. Likewise, I um I, I I love that episode, and I just did another one on John Lewis, the main brand John Lewis, uh, with uh, Rick Brim and Martin Beverly a couple of weeks back, and on John Lewis Christmas work. So it's great to have you back. Thank you for for helping facilitate this whole thing. And and we're here with Thomas O'Neill, who's head of marketing for McDonald's in the UK. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I feel I'm 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 a newbie to the party here, but uh, I'll try my best to fit in. I hope you brought some snacks and some fries, man, because you know we, we all need it. Even though it's a little early in the morning for me, it's lunchtime here, so yeah, French, <laughs> yeah. French fries are certainly on the menu. So first of all, congratulations on the uh, 2021. Gold Award, APG, Creative Strategy Award, 2021, uh, for long-term thinking. And and so I love these types of shows. We've done a number of them with brands. And I think as a strategist, this is the sort of stuff that makes me salivate the most is when we look back at long-term strategy, uh, because we have a tendency, and maybe it's one of our weaknesses as, as marketers, is that we tend to jump around a little bit too quickly. So when there's something that's in place for a long time, uh, it's terrific to be able to uh, to talk about it. I think at the heart of this, Thomas, is 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 uh, uh, is that this was a sort of a brand rebuild in many ways. Mm. And um, you know, I, I've as many people know, I grew up in Ireland, and I remember McDonald's in Ireland in the in the early eighties, and, and I think it, that was the, roughly the time when it came to to Ireland was it the same time period in the UK where where McDonald's came to, to that market it was 1974 wow in, in london woolwich southeast london so we're we're just starting to have some conversations about about what we'll do for 50 years as an anniversary in in 2024 um so yeah 74 we 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 launched in, in this market and you know i think by by the time we got to the mid noughties and you know the, the the initial phase of our journey in this market was establishment right so um gaining a presence in as many towns and cities as possible you know when we got to the mid noughties we were starting to plateau it was really interesting and and you look back at the numbers and it all makes sense now we can look back at it and realize what was going on but you're right. I think we're at a point where we needed to rebuild because the formula that we'd been using for 25 years was was no longer relevant in the market and with the customers. So there was a, there was a number of different factors. Uh, just to sort of put a stake in the ground is before we start out here, you were not only looking at sort of a a sort of refreshing the model of communication, the style of communication, but you were also dealing at that time. With, with a sort of a reputational challenge. This was in roughly early 2000s, 2005, 2006. Uh, what, were the, what were the challenges that the brand was facing and the category was facing at that time that sort of led in part to this sort of reevaluating how you communicated? 
Yeah, I mean, you, you you use the words reputational challenge, and I would I would go perhaps one step further than that and say, I can't think of any other examples of where a brand the size that we were at the time were in as much trouble as we were at the time. I can't think of anything since that that is of the scale of the challenge that was there at the time, and it was the perfect storm of of a number of factors globally and also locally. So globally. You know, we're we're coming off the back of, of 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 a number of different things that that the brand was um, suffering from in terms of reputation. So, Super Size Me, Fast Food Nation, um, pretty much anybody that's interested in marketing or advertising will know the the, the challenge that that meant for us as a, as a brand at the time. And then you go into the the market specifics at the time as well. With you had all the impact of the global thing. And then there were so many things going on for us in terms of nutrition at the time. We were in a real, a real troubling place because we had quite a lot of criticism for, for our menu and our food. So like I said, it was a bit of a perfect storm at, at the time. As Thomas just mentioned, you've got this, um, you've got this reputational challenge and you've got a, a business challenge. Tell me about your understanding of what was happening uh, from a Leo Burnett's perspective back then what were your views on what the challenges were that needed to be addressed yeah so i think thomas has sort of covered the challenges i mean they were cultural they were global they're also very local i mean we have our own take on what health nutrition was all about here we have the, our own celebrities who were you know campaigning for it and and because we were the market leader and newspapers were also using us as the whipping person in the in those news stories so I think everyone at Leobinet was very aware of that I say that not having not being at Leobinet at the time but they would have been very aware of that I think the first thing that happened and Thomas could probably talk more about this but is McDonald's didn't go oh everything's gone wrong it's time to do some advertising they got the house in order first so there were fundamental changes made to the restaurants McDonald's in the UK started looking very different I remember it at the time um suddenly green and modern and feeling very fresh. Um, and then there was obviously the changes in the menu and the sourcing, and it became a much more orderly business compared to what the accusations had been. So that was the first thing that happened. And then from there, there was a challenge of working out, okay, what do we do next? And the first big push, which I think it would be easy for me to say, well, Leah Burnett pushed McDonald's. I think it was done in partnership. The first big push was to try and get trust comms working. So before anything else, so forget thinking of this in terms of the overall idea of brand advertising or whatever. We needed some comms in market that drove trust for the brand because that's what was damaged. There was uh, a series of bits of research, UNA studies, et cetera, which proved that um, issues with trust were hurting customer visits. And I think what's really interesting is and we didn't touch on this, but McDonald's may have been in trouble at the time. And like Thomas said, like the scale of that trouble was extraordinary. But so was also the scale of the McDonald's ambition. So it was never just um, get us out of the trouble. It's right, we want to continue growing. We've known 30 plus years of consistent growth in the UK. We would like to continue that, please. 
and that's what we'd like to get back to. And, that, um, and that's and that's something that's something that I thought was uh, I, I remember noting from the case when I read it, which mm. was the idea that and Thomas touched on this earlier that the uh, growth had had been strong in terms of new store openings. Yeah, the brand had been around since the seventies, so growth wasn't about opening more locations. Growth had to be increasing or or shifting either the frequency of visits or the or the amount of a of and, uh, of uh, a check on a visit right yeah so, so that's a challenge right that's the most interesting thing i think for all which is look long story short we did get back into growth um and we continued it for 13 years before covid came for us all um but not only did we get back into growth we did it without opening new restaurants my understanding is that it was a decision was made which ironically is not unlike what John Lewis faced, uh, Tom, which was there was a recognition, a recognition that emotionally rooted advertising was needed as part uh, of the solution. Tell us a little about, about how you get to that. Um, I think what's interesting is how we've gone from two pillars of brand advertising to seeing brand advertising as more of a way of doing everything. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that happened through, and Thomas, you know, interrupt me, mate, but uh, <laughs> I think that happened through the slightly difficult years of, you know, the 20 teens, if you like, um, where we needed to turbocharge our approach to value um, because there was a slight wobble in the brand metrics around 2013. Um, and so we brought more emotion to it. So suddenly your value advertising is more emotional too. Uh, and you're, you're, you know, you remember hopefully the platform like getting your money's worth. That's where that comes from. Um, and then we slightly evolved the model to bring in this idea of establish, which is uh, replacing variety. Really, it's this idea about growing occasions. So you've got your delivery occasion and your coffee occasion, and 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 we do that not in a hard nosed dre way we do that in what we'd like to think is an, an, an emotional brand building way too that doesn't just take value from the brand but gives back to it so we've gone from two pillars of brand work to i think you know we, we, we're at four pillars which are all called different things but they're all brand building in different ways back in 2006 and and the the, the series of years that that follow that there was a there was a lot of issues around food quality, et cetera, with across all categories. I mean, KFC had to deal with the same thing, and we've talked to them on the show about it. Um, but historically, uh, agencies, creative agencies, haven't been very good at prescribing the right concepts to get through the BS meter of those who are more sort of activist or or a little bit more determined around the issue. Um, how did you? What was the tone that you sort of had to strike in order to have communications dealing with the issue of trust, dealing with the issue of product quality? How did you strike the right tone? At the time, I think there was a temptation, particularly in reacting to the issues in the press, to be quite defensive. And I, I, I'm not suggesting that McDonald's was, but I think any brand under that amount of scrutiny would be. And there was an act of decision made at the time and so the legend goes between planners and creatives and account people here as well as the board at mcdonald's and 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 that isn't an exaggeration because uh, that, that is a constant relationship it is not 
upstairs, downstairs, the board of McDonald's, the marketing department of McDonald's, and Lebanet, we're all in constant conversation. So at the time, there was this joint decision amongst everyone that we needed to get that tone right. We couldn't be defensive. And the two words that were uttered that everyone nodded to was this idea that we should be confidently humble. This idea of not pretending that everything was okay, of starting, you know, dropping the front a bit and going, look, this is what we're about. So being confidently humble, starting really from sort of from the ground floor, starting up again. And that's led, I think, into some really interesting takes on that creatively. So you'll see in the work over the last 15 years, it's, you know, that's led to a bit of self-deprecating humour, not like really being hard on ourselves, but, you know, just admitting things, admitting like not everyone likes the Gherkins in Big Macs. I think they're mad. I love them, but not everyone does. Um, It's also meant sort of real naked honesty. When you look at the trust work of the time, it was going right back to, okay, well, these are the actual fields we grow our potatoes in, Um, being really honest about that. And also later later on being frankly, almost confrontational about the honesty, going like, we know there are rumours around the brand. This is the truth of them, and this is, you know, this, these are the lies of them. Um, and then at a very creative level, it, that confidence has also led us to be communicating really simple ways, like starkly simple. And I think as we've gotten more confident and we've found our stride, you can see it in some of the more recent work. Like McDonald's, UK McDonald's advertising is some of the most starkly iconic and simple stuff you'll ever see. You know, it doesn't overpromise anything. Um, it doesn't overstate anything. And in some cases, it doesn't say anything. It's just it's just our distinctive assets with a key thought. And, you know, I think that's been clear recently in like our delivery work. What are a couple of examples? I think you mentioned a gherkin as an example, because I want to drop some of these spots into the audio track. Okay. Are there examples like of, of when you say naked honesty, uh, what are a couple of spots that reflect that or self-reprecating humor? Yeah, so naked honesty, I mean... If we look back in time, this is a bit of a, you know, greatest hits, but the trust work that came out at the time. So you've got planting and the big nothing. Um, and both of those went into great detail about what actually goes into the food. By working together with farmers, we ensure that only whole cuts of British and Irish beef, top quality potatoes, and farm-assured white chicken breast go into our Happy Meals. That's what makes McDonald's. I think what was uh, good to drop in, just because the way you can see how it developed, is later on in the mid-noughties, um, we started. We had a campaign called Good to Know, which was slightly pokier. You know, we started to be able to wield that tone in, in, in slightly more confrontational ways. And, and, and one at a time, it took off all the myths that people had spread, and we've all heard them, right, you know, in the schoolyard about the things that go in or don't go into McDonald's food, and largely it's don't. It was a campaign that took all those myths head on. Sometimes Steve ponders on the important things in life, like what McDonald's fries are made from. Jeff from Account says... They're not even made from potato. His girlfriend Gemma says... Everyone knows you can't eat them if you're vegetarian. And Jeanette says... They're grown artificially in a secret factory somewhere. But Terry is a farmer, and he knows his russet Burbank from his Pentland Dell. And he knows that all McDonald's fries are made from real, whole British spuds. No weird stuff, no secret factories. So don't listen to Jeff, Gemma and Jeanette. Take it from Terry. We never really had a a, a significant commercial problem. So if you look at 
if you look at our position in the market at the time, even though we we were facing, as I said earlier, one of the biggest brand challenges I've ever seen any brand face, we were still serving you know over 100 million customers a year. And we were still market leaders. We were market leaders right the way through the through the problem. So, the the way that we assess success in this was was I mean obviously the ultimate end game is to serve more cost more customers more often. And when we we're all over that commercially um, at any moment in time, this was more around well how are we changing customers' opinions of the brand? Mm. How are we convincing them that we've we've turned a bit of a corner here or or how are we convincing them that, that the fast food that, you know, down the pub or with, you know, at work with their friends that people are starting to bash and say, that's not good for you or that's not good for your kids. How do we actually start to convince them otherwise? And, and uh, you know, that's a, that's a long journey. And I'd argue we're not even finished with it. You know, we've, we've improved brand scores in terms of trust massively. You know, we were, um, we were we were we were trusted by many people back then, and we're we're now about half, and that's that's a, a big move. But we you know we want to go further with that. In retrospect, would you look at any particular campaign and say, yeah, we noticed a sort of a notable blip? I'd say there are there are two standout campaigns that that I think were bigger than anything we'd done for a long time and, and probably bigger than, than than we did for five or six years afterwards. The first one was just passing by. So this was a, an ad that was firmly rooted in the brand love side of things. Now the laborers and cablers and council motion tablers were just passing by. And the gothy types and scoffy types and like their coffee frothy types were just passing by. Those on their own whilst on the phone, dunking McNuggets and having a moan were just passing by. The driving through with hungry crew who just pulled off the A32 were just passing by. And the IT bots with taps and prods, eating a Big Mac whilst writing their blogs were just passing by. And the first in types, and lurking types, and like to lose their gherkin types, and suddenly just burst in types were just passing by. And the extroverts and introverts and guys in newly ironed shirts who like to text outrageous flirts were just passing by. And the little folk who share a joke and nudge and poke about that bloke who slurps his coke and gives his goatee beard a stroke were just passing by. There's a McDonald's for everyone. One of the things that, that came through loud and clear in the planning work at the time was the democracy of the McDonald's brand is a huge strength and, and arguably an untapped um, growth driver for us and th- that ad was so powerful because it demonstrated the democracy of, of the mcdonald's menu the mcdonald's experience and um as as straightforward as it sounds um showed many different people enjoying mcdonald's in many different ways and it for me i, I remember it at the time being quite significant because it was moving away from the shame into celebration, you know, the shame of, of who we'd been a few years ago to celebrating the things that we've always stood for in the UK since 1974, the small nuances and the things that you do with our food and our packaging, 
brought to life in a really fun and creative way and um it's still used now like the, our, our friends in the, in the global marketing team they call them fan truths yes and they're just you know the little things that you do i mean the thing i used to do as a kid well, as a teenager with my friends i'd um unwrap the straw um put the opened end in my mouth and blow the paper packaging out <laughs> yeah. of my, my best mate. And, and they're the kind of things that, um, that bring the fun of the, the experience to life. So that was the first campaign. The second one. And what what year was that one, by the way? That's 2008. 2008. Yeah. So right at the very start. Um, and then, um, planting was, 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 was the other one that, that really for me stands out as, as a pivotal moment where we, um, you know, I used the term opening our doors. We, we absolutely opened our doors and said, look, let's show you how we work, how our supply chain works, where we source our food. Forget what you heard from, you know, from your best mate or um, your colleague. This is how we source our food. And do you know what? You might be a bit surprised by this. And it was entirely focused on the Happy Meal um, customer, specifically the parents of Happy Happy Meal customers. Mom, can we have some chicken nuggets? Oh dear, that's put Sarah in a spin because she's heard they're made from all sorts of chickeny bits. She's not really sure what to believe. This is Rosie. She's a food tech teacher and mum. Hi. Oh, hello. When it comes to food, Rosie knows what's what. She knows what 100% chicken breast meat looks like and what it tastes like. So, now Sarah knows what goes into our McNuggets, everyone is happy. Have you ever wondered how they make the eggs for the sausage and egg McMuffin? Jen has. Is it a real egg? If Sam had a penny for every time he was asked that, he'd have a nice little nest egg. Phoebe thinks it would be easier if they weren't real, but they wouldn't be as good. Chups and Chloe agree. You've got to love a real egg. Oh, yeah. So, there you have it, Jen. There's a real, freshly cracked, free-range egg in every McMuffin. What did you learn from that, Thomas? You got these two sort of pivotal campaigns. You're, 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 lead, you're helping lead the brand. What did, you, what did you take away from those two campaigns that you were you were you knew needed to be a part of everything going forward i think the 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 most obvious thing that comes from it and it, and it's easy to say in hindsight but it was a bit harder to get our heads around at the time is if you work hard to change the perceptions of the brand longer term the, the commercial returns can be greater than just going here's something new for us and it's 99 pence or here's, here's a new burger or a new drink that you can try. And we still do all of that now. You know, we did at the time. But we through all the economic metric modeling that we do, and it takes around six months to get these numbers back. But we know that anything that we that we do in this space, in the brand building space, pays back in terms of the return to the pound that we spend way more than, than anything else we do. The big picture story is every year that return on investment that Thomas has described has got stronger. So it's not just that we spend more, but it also returns more for every time we spend. <laughs> so if you look at a, uh, a chart of ROI for 15 years, every bar goes up. 
it's extraordinary. So for me, that's the more interesting thing is that it all works together. Is it, it may not be one platform, but it's definitely one ongoing body of work. When I hear stories like this, and I've heard it from various brands in various categories that are dealing with issues of reputation that may or may not be a result of their direct actions, but just things that are bubbling up in culture. Uh, I'm always surprised how quickly things turn around for brands. And, and, and I'm wondering, given the fact that you've seen continuous growth, um, I'm not downplaying the issues that you face, sure, sure. but how, to what degree were these really major issues or was it something that just needed to be explained the, that, um, that maybe customers who were feeling that they were entrusting of the brand weren't requiring revolution, but they were just requiring explanation. Um, because your your return to growth so quickly would suggest that it was it's the latter. It's just okay. Just explain to us. Be honest. Explain these issues. Um, uh, or was it deeper than that? Am I reading that? Am I reading that wrong? Uh, categorically and and for McDonald's. No, I think it's a good point. I think. Look, I think there's a certain amount of historic effect there, isn't it? So we can look back at it now and go, oh, it turned back around. Uh, that was quick. I, I it certainly wouldn't have felt that way at the time. Um, so it was a gradual, a gradual process of building that trust back up. And as you will know now, say if I said to you, we've got, there's a crisis happening, I'll catch up with you on how it's going next year. You'd go, well, it could be the end of the company in 12 months. I mean, that would, a year would feel like a very long time. And, and, and the truth is, is that resurgence of the brand took, you know, took half a decade to do properly. Um, and then I think the interesting thing from there is, and I, I think this is still answering the question, but is how you maintain that. I don't think many stories talk about how hard it is to keep growth coming. Um, those, I mean, like you say, there, there is no shortage. I've written some. There's no shortage of case studies with those hockey stick graphs of that quick turnaround. Like that happens. Um, keeping that going despite all the other problems that come your way, that's much harder. Um, and that's the truth of it, is there aren't many stories like that. I mean, there was the problems of the mid-noughties that we faced, and I think we turned it around over a series of years. I don't think it was instant, over a series of years. And then there were other problems that came afterwards. I think Josh Bullmore, our CSO at the time, described it as, it was like waking up one morning and finding tanks on the lawn, uh, which I which I think is like a reference to the Prague Spring. But anyway, um, you get the idea. And there was all sorts of things. So the category fragmented. Okay, So do you remember the, the rise of Posh Burgers, Byron, GBK, all that, that happened. Uh, coffee. like it's You would have to um, cast your mind back, but speciality coffee, you know, Costa, Starbucks, all those guys. That wasn't such a big deal during the crisis when we were mid-noughties. It became a big deal in the decade after, and that was a problem. Um, and then on top of that, obviously, that's all having the premiumization, the fragmentation of the categories having effects on customer attitudes towards air quality, towards quality they expect in general. On top of that, then you've got the value players coming in. You've got Greg's. Um, you've got no end of different fun problems <laughs> coming your way yeah. and then things like covid happened so i think you're right like turnaround stories they do happen and it, it, it is interesting that it can look very quick on a graph i don't think it feels quick at the time 
But I think where it gets really interesting is go, right, how do you keep growing despite a succession of new things? Because it, it, there is always new things. And particularly when you're leading the category, which, as Thomas says, like we're very lucky. We, we are big by default. So we're always going to be at the forefront of the category. The other thing I would, I would add as well is, um, it's picking up on something you were saying earlier, I think there are a couple of ways that, that you see things happen in terms of turnarounds or attempted turnarounds. On the one hand, you see a brand like they might go, um, we've got a real problem here and we're going to change everything that we do. And they go ahead and do that, but they they fundamentally get it wrong in terms of telling people about it. They might not even spend the money to communicate it, or if they do, they get it wrong and that fails. Or the other side of the coin, you might get people that spend you know a, a ton of money in the advertising space trying to say, look, look how great we are. But you know that there are some fundamental problems with business that they haven't fixed behind the scenes, and and the, I think what, where we were is in that perfect middle ground. You know, we were talking differently about our brand and our business, and that message changed year on year. And in the background, we we're making fundamental business changes from menu to restaurants to people to to finance you know structure the business in terms of franchise model all loads of stuff like that and 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 we never had one without the other and i think that's the most powerful thing of all like we never advertise something without any substance behind it and likewise for the big things that we changed we communicated it every time otherwise you know why do it in the first place one of the other things thomas i'd love and then i want to switch over to tom to talk about the uh the 2020 work is one of the other things I'd love to get your perspective on is this issue of brand platform that we've talked about earlier. And you guys have said, you don't necessarily have a singular one Um, in, 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 uh, in marketing comms world, that's almost like uh, um, a, a, uh, it's almost like an indefensible thing to say, right? Because we in our world are all about, okay, we got to get things really simple it's got to have just a single idea going through everything. We've got to have, you know, it used to be that it was called a brand position or a brand proposition. Now the language in, in this world is brand platform. I'm really curious because I'm imagining a lot of my listeners will be also curious. Why not have a single brand platform? Uh, whether it's a campaign platform or a brand platform. I mean, you could look at famous orders and think that's really is that a brand platform or a campaign platform? Whatever. It doesn't really matter if the work that's coming out is terrific. W- why, why not have one? And if somebody were to say to you, what is McDonald's all about? What would you suggest that would be? Some people that maybe don't live in, in the market and, and haven't seen the way we communicate might think that we've got a bunch of different campaigns that, you know, that, that are very different and totally they don't add up or in terms of visual identity and print elements they don't feel like they're coming from the same brand and and that's not the case and i'm gonna i'm gonna steal this is the second time this week by the way i've stole i'm gonna steal tom's analogy that he used (laughs) with me a few weeks ago which was um a jazz band um we you know that jazz band has a number of brilliant kind of individually talented musicians um but it's really important that they all play together. Otherwise, it just sounds 
dreadful. And, and uh, you know, the one thread, I think we talk about it internally is the McDonald's smile, but the one thread that we have through all the different marketing communications we have is through tone. And it's so hard to describe. And you know, I've been around so long and even I can't really articulate it in, in any, in any um, kind of comprehensible way. But, um, you, you know, the idea is that when whatever we're talking about and, and however we're saying it, if a customer can't recognize that it's from McDonald's, then we haven't done our job. And that could be, could be, you know, the simple layout of an outdoor ad. It could be um, the structure of a TV ad. Um, it could be the way we position an offer to a customer, whatever it is. If it doesn't feel like it's coming from us, then, then, we, then, it, then it isn't working. And, um, you know, that's the, that's the glue for all the different things coming together. So, Tom, how do you have a sense of how you might articulate what that magic sauce, no pun intended? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I do. I, I think first it's worth saying that, yeah, we don't have that one platform. But at no point are we confused as to what brand we are. Right? So everyone working at Lib and everyone working at McDonald's, everyone knows what that brand is. We have our own internal mantras. We have a brand promise, which we can refer to. Uh, which gives us a grounding. So, you know, we're all about making feel-good moments easy for everyone. That is the McDonald's thing. And then we have our tone, the confidently humble tone. Um, we have that a, a fairly good formula for the sort of insight or emotional heart of the ads we have. Um, and that's, and we have a mnemonic as well. And I'll be honest, that is often enough. That binds everything together. Now, as Thomas says, there's lots of different facets of our person, you know, of, of, of what McDonald's is, you know, when we're expressing the things you should trust about us or love about us or the reason you should get excited to come visit us. We've got different things to say, but it's always the same brand at the heart of it. And I think it is interesting because most people would go, well, we need to underline that with a line <laughs> uh, and make sure everything sings off that. And, and I don't think, we, we know now, don't we? We know that consumers or people more specifically don't care you know uh, a really catchy line's a great thing but most brands don't have one um so you find your distinctive assets wherever you can and 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 that's not one at the moment we feel we need so i just have one other or one other topic i want to touch on which goes back to the point that thomas made earlier which is this this issue of sort of visual identity and um when I look at iconic snacks as a campaign and that, that work has gotten a ton of notoriety, um, but it's, it doesn't look like McDonald's work. It doesn't look immediately like McDonald's work, but boy, does it feel like it. And you guys have played with that a lot. And I'm wondering, uh, Thomas, was that, what was the motivation behind iconic snacks campaign in 2020? What were you trying to achieve there? So I'll be really honest here. It's the kind of work that we at McDonald's feel a bit more uncomfortable about because, <laughs> because it's riskier. And and you know, I'll be honest of, of how these conversations go. Like the, the Leo Burnett team will 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 come to us with with this this amazing concept and go, look, we think this is incredible and maybe a little bit different to what you've done before, but really powerful. And, and then we take it away and go, wow, that, that's a bit different. But 
it's so good and you know should we run with it and obviously as i said before it's a franchise model so we're you know, we're, we're spending the franchisees um money on the on, on the advertising itself and so we, we we're quite risk averse i think tom is probably a fair, a fair way to, 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 to describe it um but then you know there's you run with it and 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 you have the faith do you know what's really funny it's spreading around the mcdonald's system right now um and it and each market is becoming quite competitive with each other um and who can do the best work in this space because and the and the and the, the, the best examples are talked about you know my, my linkedin and tom's linkedin goes bananas when when this work breaks for the first time and um and the French McDonald's in France, arguably were the pioneers of this kind of work. And um, we have this term in, in, the, in as a, a kind of global marketing function in McDonald's called stealing shamelessly, where they, they really encourage at a global level, we're encouraged to take great ideas or, or, or techniques from other markets and, and use it ourselves, but doing it a better way. So Tom, what, what, what was the objective behind Iconic Stacks? Where did it's it come a, from? It's a brand building thing, and it came spontaneously from us. It, it, it was without brief, right? So it was proactive work, uh, which we're constantly doing. So where it really comes from is this other principle we have of, of this push. We're constantly pushing things forward, which when you're a brand outside, you've got to do, right? Because if you, <laughs> if you stagnate, it all goes very, very wrong. Um, and I think there's kind of two things we're pushing all of the time which is easy to articulate now. It may not be something we would all say day in, day out, but it's certainly true, which is we're pushing that confidently humble thing. So like we, we're getting to the point now where there's very little you can remove from our ads. Like they're so minimalist. Uh, it couldn't be any more humble, any more confident. Yeah, and for the listener, um, the when we talk about iconic stacks, we're talking about very simple executions. It's just a solid background color and there are just words stacked on top of each other. And those words just describe the product. They don't conclude and tell you what it is. There's no McDonald's logo on it. For example, one just says, again, these words are stacked from top to bottom. It says bun, beef, gherkin, <laughs> lettuce, sauce, bun, beef, cheese, lettuce, sauce, bun. That's it. That's it. That's the communication. And there's a series of them, but they're each describing uh, McDonald's products. And it just generated a ton of buzz over here and uh, a ton of buzz on social. I mean, if, if, there, if there was ever a piece of advertising that was not designed to be talked about in a podcast... Uh, <laughs> yeah. that, that is it. But I admire yeah. your attempt, Fergus. To describe I mean, you say that. I think someone should cut that clip out of Fergus describing it and loop <laughs> it. We've got a new EDM banger out of that. I, I love that. it. <laughs> I love it. Listen, it is. Uh, it's Tom Sussman, head of strategy, Leo Burnett in London, and Thomas O'Neill, head of marketing for McDonald's UK out of London. Thank you, guys. Thank you both for coming on. It was really a. It was a fun conversation. We really appreciate it. Absolute oh. pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. And we'll see everybody on the next episode.